please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Our sermon text this morning is Colossians 4, 2 to 6. Uh, Before I read it, I just want to announce to you that, uh, God permitting, I will not be here uh, next week. I will be at a Christian Counseling and Education Foundation conference uh, attending Lord permitting, after we study through Colossians together, we will dive in to the book of Proverbs. And this conference that I'm going to is about wisdom literature. I'm delighted uh, to go. I'm, I'm very grateful that the church allows me that privilege. I will miss you all very much. I've been here, I think, probably about 15 weeks in a row, and it's just been absolutely delightful. I'm thrilled to be your pastor. Uh, next week, Lord willing, our brother Marcus will preach, so you are in excellent hands uh, I, I look forward, Lord willing, to see you in, seeing you again in, in two weeks. So let me read to you uh, from Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 to 6. Paul writes this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Are you awake? Are you awake? In one sense, if you're alive and conscious and not asleep, uh, then yes, you are awake. Thank you for being awake here at the beginning of the sermon. We'll see how that goes. But there's another sense to that word awake. Uh, In the Bible, being awake often implies the idea of being attentive or alert or watchful. Uh, To be awake is to be keenly aware of reality, especially of spiritual reality. So in the Gospel of Mark, in the last few verses of Mark chapter 13... Jesus is teaching his disciples about his second coming. And three times, within a few short verses, Jesus tells his followers that in light of his second coming, they are to stay awake. Jesus isn't saying, don't go to sleep until I come back. Jesus is exhorting his disciples to go through life alert to the reality of Christ's lordship and imminent return. They and we are to live awake to the reality that we recited together in the creed that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus repeatedly urges his followers to stay awake at the end of Mark 13. And in Mark chapter 14, Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter and James and John as our sister Sarah read for us earlier. Jesus knows that he'll be crucified very shortly, 
And in Mark chapter 14, verse 34, Jesus says this. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. That word translated watch is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 13 to tell his disciples to stay awake. And now here in the Garden of Gethsemane, John, Jesus commands Peter and James and John to watch, or literally, to stay awake. Jesus wants them to be on the alert. Jesus goes off on his own to pray, and when he comes back, he finds his disciples not awake, but asleep, literally. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch? Literally, could you not stay awake one hour? Watch, stay awake, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see what Jesus is saying, right? He, he isn't just saying, hey, don't fall asleep again. Jesus wants his disciples to be alert to the spiritual reality of sin and of temptation. He wants them to pay attention to what's about to happen as he's suffering in the garden, as he's about to be crucified. He wants them to be awake spiritually to what's happening. Watch and pray. Stay awake, says Jesus. Well, in our passage from Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 to 6, we find something of a similar exhortation. Uh, in our passage, the Apostle Paul is closing out his instructions on the Christian life to the saints at Colossae. Uh, in this passage, Paul really gives the Colossians, and by extension us, a two final commands before the letter's conclusion. He tells them to pray, and he tells them to walk wisely toward unbelievers. In a few minutes, I'll give you a rather predictable two-point sermon outline about that. Uh, but before we dive into that, I want us to see something about why Paul is urging us to pray and to walk wisely, or even better, how Paul is urging us to pray and to walk wisely. Look there at chapter 4, verse 2. Paul writes there, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Literally, staying awake in it with thanksgiving. Here in Colossians, Paul uses the same word, that Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane to urge us that as we pray, we are to be awake, alert, in tune with spiritual reality. Paul, like Jesus, is not just saying, hey, don't fall asleep while you pray. Paul is calling us to spiritual attentiveness, to be awake to spiritual reality, especially the realities that he's been telling us about throughout Colossians. Because you see, if you're not awake, you won't pray. If you're not awake, you won't pray. At least not as Paul tells us to. If you're not awake to the glorious preeminence of Jesus Christ in creation and in redemption, if you're not awake to how desperately you need God's grace and his help in all that you do. If you're not awake to God's global gospel purposes that go beyond us being happy and comfortable, 
If you're not awake to the fact that God, who already knows everything, wants you to ask him for things so that you might know him as your father and so that you might join him in his work. If you're not awake to these things, if you're not keenly aware of them, uh, then it would make sense that you don't pray because you're not in tune with the realities that make prayer make sense. Or think about the second command that Paul gives us in this passage, walking wisely toward unbelievers. Uh, If we're not awake to spiritual reality, we'll view the unbelievers in our lives primarily in terms of what they can do for us. We'll hang out with the ones we like, and the ones we don't like, we'll avoid them, right? But if we're awake to the fact that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. If we're awake to the fact that we live in the day of God's patience, when his gospel of grace is bearing the fruit of salvation and spreading throughout the world, if we're awake to the fact that the church and its members have been commissioned to represent King Jesus to a lost and dying world, if we're awake to these things, then we'll want to walk in a way that commends the gospel in a way that makes it attractive. Christian, are you awake to the world as God sees it? Well, with that in mind, during the rest of our time this morning, uh, let's look at Paul's two commands here in these verses. First, the command to pray, uh, and then second, the command to walk wisely toward unbelievers. So first, Paul's command there to pray. Look again with me at verse 2. Paul writes there, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Four things to notice about Paul's call to pray here. Four things to notice. First thing to notice is that prayer is hard work. Not too long ago, I was at the store, and I bought a large-ish bag of miniature Reese's peanut butter cups. There was at the top of this bag a blue banner indicating that this bag was shareable. It was also eat-by-yourselfable, I'm happy to report. Anyways, when I bought this bag of Reese's, uh, the store clerk did not tell me, uh, nor did he need to tell me, continue steadfastly in consuming these chocolate-covered peanut butter cups. Because, you know, I don't want to brag, but it really wasn't that hard. No one needs to be told to continue steadfastly to eat delicious candy because it's not hard work. Uh, But prayer, even though I can tell you on the authority of God's Word that it is a better source of deep and lasting joy than anything that you could eat, prayer is hard work. Look down at verse 12 of chapter 4. Look at verse 12 from Paul's closing greetings. There in verse 12, Paul says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. According to Paul, 
to pray faithfully and earnestly for someone is to struggle on their behalf. It's hard work. That's why he has to tell us to continue steadfastly in it. Prayer takes time. Prayer requires mental energy. Consistent prayer almost certainly requires planning and organization. Uh, Persevering in prayer takes self-discipline. Prayer requires us to direct our fickle hearts, our distracted hearts, our often sin-entangled hearts toward God. Prayer demands that in faith we set aside other things that are more immediately appealing to us. And to be clear, there are wonderful joys, better joys than in the world to be found in prayer. But that doesn't mean it's not really hard work. That's why Paul urges us to continue steadfastly in prayer. So so really briefly here, let me just offer you a few helps uh, in continuing steadfastly in prayer. The first help in this duty to continue steadfastly in prayer is, is our Sunday morning worship services. Our services here are designed to help us obey Paul's command to continue steadfastly in prayer. When you come on a Sunday morning, you just have to sit and stand in your pew at the appropriate times. And you will pray with us, if you're following us, five or six times. The services are designed to help you persevere in obedience to Paul's call to pray. So brothers and sisters, come to church ready to pray. Praise God, you're all at church. And we've prayed like four times. Praise the Lord. Already applying the sermon preemptively. Brothers and sisters, come to church ready to pray, eager to pray, eager to seek God's face, to commune with him, to ask his help to think on his glory. Uh, Paul's command here, you can't see it in the English, but it's in the second person plural. If he were from Texas, he would have said, y'all continue steadfastly in prayer. Uh, Paul wants the corporate life of the Colossian church and our corporate life at Franconia Baptist to be marked by continuing steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is hard work, and our Sunday morning services are a help to you in that work. Second, help Uh, in obeying the hard work uh, of prayer is our Wednesday evening and Sunday evening prayer meetings. Listen, it can be really hard to pray for an hour straight. Uh, But you know what makes praying for an hour a lot easier is if a bunch of us get together on Zoom at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday and we pray together. That makes it much easier, much more enjoyable even at times. Not that praying by yourself is not enjoyable. Or as we're starting to do in October, right? If on the second and the fourth Sundays of the month, if we get together in the fellowship hall and sing a song and hear a very, very short devotional and then break into small groups to pray, that is a help to you in obeying Paul's call to pray. So brothers and sisters, my goal is not to be legalistic. I do not want to guilt anyone into anything. And to be very clear, there's nothing in the Bible that commands God's people to be at every single church meeting. That's not in the Bible. Uh, But one way or the other, we are commanded to continue steadfastly in prayer. I I understand that we all have lots of different life circumstances. Let me just ask you to consider, to consider whether the church's prayer meetings might be a help to you 
and greater faithfulness in this area. Saints, I trust that you will find that when you gather with God's people to pray, it will be a step toward more joy in Jesus to pray with his people. It helps in the hard work of prayer are our services. Third help in doing the hard work of prayer is, is having a plan. Without counsel, plans fail, says Proverb. Proverbs. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, says Proverbs. Uh, many believers have found that if they don't write down what they plan to pray for, uh, they won't do it. That's certainly the case for me. If I don't write it down I, or pray for it in the moment, I probably won't pray for it. If it helps you, again, this is not in the Bible, but if it helps you, make a prayer list, right? Plan, plan to spend intentional time in prayer every day. And if you miss a day, don't despair. You are not justified by your prayer life. You're justified by grace through faith in Jesus. And because you're freely justified by grace through faith in Jesus, after you miss a day, the next day plan to continue steadfastly in prayer that you might have joy and communion with your Savior. A plan to create space in your day where you won't be distracted by your phone or by other people, where you can devote attention to praying. In the Gospels, we read that day after day, literally thousands of people wanted the time and attention of the Lord Jesus because of his miracles. And in the midst of that kind of demand, we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Mark 1.35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Matthew 14, 23, after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Saints, Jesus, Jesus thought that he needed for his own sake to be constant in prayer. We ought to follow our Savior in this. He calls us to follow him in this. A fourth and final help in obeying the hard work uh, of praying is the prayer, a directory, a speaking of writing things down. You don't have to write down all of the names of the members of the church with whom you've covenanted. The church administrator did it for you. She even put their pictures next to their names so that if you don't know who they are, you can give them a good look and, and keep your eye out for them next Sunday. She even put 15 biblical prayer points on the back page of the directory. I should have brought mine up here and waved it around, but I, it's in my bag. Uh, so if you don't know what to pray for someone because you don't really know them, you just have to look at the back and see, well, what, what does the Bible encourage me to pray for my brothers and sisters? When we recite our church covenant at members meetings, we agree to the following. We say, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. My goal is not to create additional rules here. Jesus was not a fan of creating additional rules. Uh, but Franconia Baptist Church, let me just commend to you uh, the prayer directory as, as a potentially really helpful aid in our call to pray for each other. So those are some helps. That's, that's our first thing that we need to see about prayer in this passage, that it's, that it's hard work. As saints, I hope you can see that it's hard work that leads to deep joy by God's grace. Second thing we need to note in this first point about prayer 
uh, far more briefly there in verse 2 is that Paul tells us to be watchful in prayer, or as we've said, to stay awake. We've already said quite a bit about that. Uh, Paul is calling us to pray alert and focused, awake to spiritual reality. A New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, puts it this way. He says, men and women of persistent prayer are those who are constantly on the alert, alive to the will of God and the need of the world, and ready to give an account of themselves and their stewardship. Paul is encouraging us to watchful wakefulness as we pray. It's possible Paul could also be urging us to be watchful for answers to our prayer, and that would make sense in, the, in light of the third thing that we're told about prayer there at the end of verse 2, which is that we're to pray with thanksgiving. Again, look at verse 2. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And that is to say a regular feature of our prayer life uh, is not to be only asking God for what we need. Uh, but also giving him thanks. Uh, Surely, Paul is thinking of giving thanks for everything that we've received in Jesus. We should give thanks that in Jesus, we have forgiveness for all our sins. We should give thanks that when we were hostile toward God, uh, God reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. We should give thanks that our enslavement to sin has died with Jesus thanks that Jesus' resurrection has given us new life, eternal life. We should give thanks that even now, our favor with God is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who is seated at God's right hand. Saints, you live under the favor of God, not because you're killing it in your prayer life, but because Jesus is because he died for our sins, including our prayerlessness. And he sits at the right hand of the Father with our names engraved on his heart. And he prays for us. When we pray, let's give God thanks for that. Let's give him thanks that when Jesus Christ appears, when he returns, we will appear with him in glory. Saints, how much happier would we be? How much less worried would we be if we gave God regular thanks for all we've received in Jesus? Uh, I think Paul might also be encouraging us uh, to be attentively ready to give thanks when God answers our prayers. So let me just give you an example. Uh, Recently, our brother, Kyle Sweetland, member of our church, uh, has moved to Turkey uh, in part to obtain his master's degree, and in, in large part to support Chankaya Baptist Church and the spread of the gospel there. Well, several months ago, Kyle was asking us to pray that he would do well on the GRE uh, to strengthen his application. And we prayed for that, and God heard our prayers. Thanks be to God. Uh, and then Kyle asked us to pray that his interview with the university would go well. And we prayed. And it did. Thanks be to God. Kyle asked us to pray that they would accept his application. And we prayed and they did. Thanks be to God. Then Kyle asked us to pray that the Lord would provide him with housing in Turkey and help him to get done everything that he needed to do before leading. And we prayed and God heard us. Thanks be to God. And now Kyle lives in Turkey 
and he's starting grad school, and he's living with an unbeliever who wants to read the Bible with him. Thanks be to God. Do you see how much we miss when we pray and we don't stop to give thanks when God answers our prayers? What a delightful duty. What a happy way to obey. Here's New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce again. He says, prayer and thanksgiving can never be dissociated from each other in the Christian life. The remembrance of former mercies not only produces spontaneous praise and worship, it is also a powerful incentive to renewed believing prayer. Just writing all of that down in my sermon manuscript about Kyle made me want to pray because it was evident that God heard us. We need that reminder. Paul writes here that prayer first is hard work, that we should pray watchfully, that we should pray thankfully. Fourth and final thing that we need to see about prayer that Paul says here is that we should pray with a gospel focus. We should pray with a gospel focus. All the way back at the beginning of Colossians, Paul told the Colossians that he was continuing steadfastly in prayer for them. He said that he was giving thanks to God for them. Like the flip side of his commands in this passage, right at the beginning of the letter. And Paul mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 6, that the thing that he was so thankful for was that the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing among the Colossians and all over the world. The spread of the gospel in the salvation of God's people, that's what made Paul and Timothy give God persistent thanks in their ceaseless prayers at the beginning of the, Col- of the letter to the Colossians. Well, Paul ends this body of the letter, really the, the rest of the letter is kind of a, a postscript full of greetings. So he ends, he bookends this letter uh, by telling the Colossians to be thankful, just as he was thankful at the beginning, and by asking them to pray for him, and especially for the progress of the gospel through him, through his ministry. Look at verses three and four. Paul writes this, he says, at the same time, As you pray with watchfulness and thanksgiving, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to me a door out of this prison. Oh, no, that's not what it says. It says that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Certainly, it would have been right and good to pray for Paul's deliverance from prison. But his headline, his priority, was the spread of the gospel through him. Paul's headline prayer request, sitting in a Roman jail cell, is for the progress of the gospel. You see, Paul is awake to what God is doing in the world, which is saving sinners for the glory of his name through the gospel of his son, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it is good and right to pray about our concerns. It's good and right to pray about our needs, our anxieties, our health. It's good and right. But perhaps more importantly, it is good and right to pray for the spread of the gospel unto the salvation of God's people for the glory of God's name. Back in chapter 1, do you remember how Paul describes the gospel? He describes it as a life-giving seed 
that's spreading and bearing fruit and multiplying all over the world. Here in this passage, the gospel is pictured as a living person ready to charge through a door that God would open. As saints, pray that in your life, God would open doors for the word of the gospel. As you pray for one another, pray that God would open doors for his word in the lives of our church members. Pray that in countries that you've never been to, that God would cause the word of truth, the gospel, to bear fruit and multiply. Pray for Andy and Rebecca Johnson in Ankara, Turkey, and for Kyle, who's gone to support them at Chankaya Baptist. Uh, Pray, as Paul asks prayer for himself, that, that you and that your pastors and that the pastors and the members of other churches would declare the mystery of Christ, as Paul puts it here. Pray earnestly, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 9, 38, uh, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I pray that God would raise up and send out, perhaps even from among us, a Christians to preach the gospel where the saving name of Jesus isn't known. Uh, you remember back in chapter 2, Paul described Jesus as the revealed mystery of God, right? Paul said back in chapter, chapter 1, really the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, uh, that Jesus is the revelatory fulfillment of all God's Old Testament plans and promises. Well, here's how that relates to us. Until Jesus comes back again, the big thing that God is doing in the world, the big spiritual reality to which we need to be awake is that God is making known the mystery of Christ to all nations. That's the big reality to which we need to be awake, that through the church, God is making known the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to all peoples. The saints, Paul calls us to pray, let us continue steadfastly in this joyous and difficult work. Let us pray watchfully. Let us pray thankfully. And let us pray with a gospel focus. That's our first point. A prayer is essential. A prayer is indispensable. But there's, there's more to do than just pray for those who are awake to God's gospel purposes. Our second point, much more briefly, a second thing that Paul calls us to do is to walk wisely toward unbelievers. The first point, call, Paul calls us to pray. Second point, Paul calls us to walk wisely toward unbelievers. Look there at verse 5. Paul says there, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Okay, time out for just a second. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first let me just say we are delighted that you have come. We hope you feel warmly welcomed. We're honored that you would join us. I wonder how Paul's words in verse 5 strike you. There's nothing at all rude or derogatory about Paul's language here. He's, he's not throwing insults at all. But, but just as a statement of fact, Paul says here that people, even if they're physically here with us, uh, who don't believe in Jesus Christ, just as a statement of fact, Paul calls them outsiders. That's what he says. So that might sound off-putting in, in our sensitive and inclusive age, 
as certainly we've, we've all had the very painful experience of being in, excluded uh, from something good, from the life of the party, uh, socially or otherwise. It's never fun to be excluded. But my friend, can you see that Paul says what he says here precisely because he wants you to come inside? Paul is telling Christians to behave in a way that invites others on the outside inside the church, inside the fellowship of, life, of God's people in fellowship with God. Not in a way that compromises the gospel, not at the expense of the lordship of Jesus, but Paul wants Christians in a wise and winsome way to live and to speak in a way that shows off how gracious the gospel is. Because see, here's the thing. We were all outsiders, all of us. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that all of us, because of our sin and rebellion against God, used to be alienated from the life of God. The Bible teaches that we were created for life-giving relationship with the living God. But through our rebellion against him, we have strayed willingly and actively from the life-giving source that is our creator. In fact, we have preferred to be on the outside. I've said this before. Listen, I, my vocation is to be a pastor. And often, I find in myself an aversion to God. That's not good, but that is true. That's called sin. Part of my job description is to pray. And I got to tell you a lot of the time, I don't want to pray. That's not okay. That's because there are remnants, even though I've been changed by the grace of God, and I do pray, praise the Lord. I, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. There are remnants in me of the old man that was hostile toward God. That's not the fundamental reality in God's people, but that is the fundamental reality in everyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We prefer to be on the outside because God is on the inside and we don't like what he requires of us. Back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul tells the Colossians that before they believed in Jesus, he says their mindset, our mindset, used to be fundamentally hostile toward God as they knowingly engaged in the practices that God hates. But friend, listen to what Paul says has happened to those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, that for all who believe in Jesus, Jesus has reconciled us by his death so that we might be blameless before God. When we were the outsiders and wanted to be in marvelous love, God pursued us to forgive us and to reconcile us at the cost of the death of his son as a substitute in our place. See, the New Testament points out the rich symbolism in the fact that Jesus was crucified and died an unspeakably horrible death outside the city gates of Jerusalem. See, Jesus was never, ever hostile toward God the Father. Jesus always did the things that were pleasing to God, but he died as an outsider. Jesus died as one alienated from the life of God, in fact, under his wrath. And Jesus did that so that rebel outsiders like you and me could be brought in. 
could be reconciled, could be forgiven. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just be really candid with you. We want you to become a Christian. And that's not because we want to control you. That's because we want you to receive the same mercy that we have. In his kindness, God has awakened us to the reality of our alienation from him and our rebellion against him. And through Jesus, we've been reconciled to the God of life. We've been saved from eternal exclusion from his goodness forever. And we are eager to tell you that the same is on offer to you. That Jesus died in the place of rebels and outsiders, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave. A Jesus is alive, and he calls you to wake up from the delusion that there is life apart from him. Jesus calls you to be reconciled to God. Uh, Paul puts this invitation vividly uh, in these words from Ephesians. He says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Friend, if you have any questions about that, please, please come talk to me after the service. Talk to anyone that you've seen up front this morning. Talk to any of our members. Talk to the friend who brought you. There's nothing more important than being reconciled to God through faith uh, in Jesus. A Christian brothers and sisters, in these last two verses, Paul calls us, to live in a way that commends that gracious message that I've just mentioned. Look again at verse 5. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul knows that the way that Christians live colors people's view of the religion that they profess. The Lord Jesus taught that the lives of his followers were to be salt and light. That is, I think, enticing and exemplary to unbelievers. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew that people should see how we live, and in particular, see our good works and give credit or give glory to God our Father. To be clear, Jesus also taught that just as he was misunderstood uh, and that just as he was wrongly, falsely maligned, uh, Jesus said so his people would often be slandered and misunderstood and misrepresented and even abused. What Paul says here seems to imply, hey, look, don't help your critics defame Jesus by how you live. Be wise. Be circumspect. Think about your public witness. Think about how you're living, what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're posting. Think about these things. Be wise. Regulate them by the light of God's word. Down there in verse 6, Paul talks about how to answer unbelievers. But one commentator points out that that implies that unbelievers might ask about what we believe because of how we live. That last phrase in verse 5, the ESV here translates it, making the best use of the time. That's a fine translation. More literally, Paul is telling the Colossians to redeem or to buy up the opportunity. So when you're at the grocery store and you see some non-perishable food item, which you already enjoy eating regularly, massively discounted, like 60% off or something, 
What do you do? You responsibly buy as much as you can within reason. You stock it up. You jump. You pounce. You seize the moment in the name of thrift. At least I do. It seems here that Paul is telling us that ought to be our attitude toward opportunities to share the gospel. We ought to be ready to pounce at the chance to speak about Jesus. We ought to be on the lookout for ideal moments to tell those outside about the gracious gospel that invites them into the life of God through reconciliation by Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? That doesn't mean vomiting the gospel on people who are not listening. That's not wise. That doesn't mean giving every single person exactly the same script. That's not necessary. I remember Paul says we're to walk wisely. Wisdom knows what it's talking about. So Christian, I think this is a call to know the gospel backward and forward so that you can talk about it wisely. A wisdom, Proverbs would tell us, often involves humility. A wisdom often involves listening. A wisdom treats all people justly, but it doesn't always treat everyone exactly in the same way. Paul says there at the end of verse 6 that wisdom involves knowing how you ought to answer each person. Right? When, you, when you share the gospel, uh, treat the person that you're sharing with like a person, like a specific individual person that they are. Yes, treat them as someone who desperately needs the gospel and treat them as someone created in God's image with dignity and worth. Paul says in the first half of that verse, he says, let your speech always be gracious. Christians, speak graciously. When should I speak graciously? Always speak graciously, especially when you talk about Jesus. Don't flatter. Don't be afraid of other people. Don't compromise God's truth. Don't be theologically mushy. That's not gracious. But let the kindness And the grace of your speech be a commercial for how gracious the gospel is. And Paul tells us there that our gracious speech is to be seasoned with salt. It's difficult to know exactly what Paul means by that image. I think he means that our gracious speech is to be wise and winsome. Tasteful uh, is not a bad description of what I think Paul is getting at. So, So listen, If you obey Jesus in your life, that will seem strange to a world that doesn't love God. Just being a Christian will make you seem strange to the world. I think by telling us to be wise, Paul is telling us, don't be additionally strange on purpose. Be wise. Be gracious. Season your speech with the salt of humble common sense. Maybe even a tasteful wit. All right, what if we don't know how to do that? All right, what if we're not that wise? What if we don't know how to respond to each person? Well, what did Paul do for the Colossians to help them grow in wisdom? Well, first, he wrote them the Bible. He mailed them the letter to the Colossians. All right, Paul knows that wisdom comes from careful attention to the Word of God. And second... At the beginning of the letter, Paul prays that the Colossians would be wise. Remember from chapter 1, he prays that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. James would say that if any of us lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, believing that he will. The good news is that God himself is eternally and unchangeably awake to our needs as we ask him. Right? When, we, when we call on him for help, when we call on him for mercy, the psalmist writes that the Lord, our keeper, never slumbers. He is perpetually awake to our needs in loving care. And as we come to him for help, we don't have to worry that we'll be turned away because we really haven't been doing a good enough job in our prayer life. Or that because heretofore we've really not been that wise. When we come to him to pray, we are assured of our favorable reception because our life is hidden with the Christ who sits at his right hand, his beloved son. Saints, let's go to our God now for help in these things. Father, thank you that when we didn't love you, Lord, when we wanted to be on the outside in mercy, you pursued us to forgive us. Lord, you gave your son to die that we might be reconciled. Lord, thank you for awakening us, Lord, to our sin and to your holiness and to the good news of your gospel. Lord, as we consider our call to obey all that we've just looked at, Lord, we, we are conscious of our deep need for your help. So, Father, would you cause us to continue steadfastly in prayer, watchful and awake, regularly thankful? Help us to be prayerful, especially for the spread of your gospel. Lord, would you give us wisdom in our conduct toward those who don't yet know you? Lord, make our speech gracious and wise and appropriate and full of your gospel. Lord, would you be pleased to glorify your name in our life together and through our witness to your word, uh, through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray now. Amen.